is this going to affect the way that we treat other people? Yes. I, I mean, you watch what's going on now where people, you know, are walking down the street with masks on, trying to stay away from everybody else. I think we're going to be shaking hands less. I think we're going to see everybody else as a threat for a while till we calm down. This has been scarring, much as 9-11 was scarring. I think this has really affected our psyche. There's been nothing like it, not in my lifetime. This is The Fit Mess with Zach and Jeremy. Our guest this week, Dr. Paul Offit, the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, also author of the new book, Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far. He's got all kinds of great advice to help us all get through this pandemic, this crisis that we're all uh, going through. We'll hear from him in just a few minutes. But for now, I've got a child crying upstairs because uh, the screen time came to an end too quickly. I'm in my basement where I've been working all day long. Uh, not feeling awesome and life is just a struggle for me as it is for everyone. This is another edition of the fit mess. I'm Jeremy. He's Zach. What's up everyone. And man, this thing has got to end this COVID-19, uh, quarantine lockdown thing has got to end. I'm losing it, man. I'm, I'm, I'm losing it. How are you holding up? I don't know what you're talking about. I'm having a wonderful time. <laughs> this is so pleasurable. I'm embracing my inner hermit. <gasps> no, just kidding. I'm losing my mind. Oh, dude, it's it was fun for a while. And I, I still I still wouldn't trade, uh, you know, working in an office environment every day uh, for this. But the the being a little stir crazy, the trying to manage uh, kids that are not in school all day while trying to get some work done, while trying to get your podcast produced, while trying to not overeat, while trying to work out and trying. It's just I'm dying. It's just I, you know, I don't I don't uh, make a habit of quoting the, the president often, but the whole uh, cure is worse than the disease thing is, is starting to starting to starting to set in a little too real for me. Yeah, that's it, it can definitely have that effect. And um but I mean, we still need, we got at least another month to go <laughs> at least. Oh, so anyways, it's uh, it's been a challenge. I've uh, I have been doing a couple things to to take a little bit better care of myself and and overall just, you know, trying to make the best of a terrible situation, just like everybody else. <laughs> I hear a child upstairs. Yeah. Ah! Yeah, you can hear it. It's all it's all day while I'm working. Just the footsteps uh, running across the roof, the yelling, and then the inevitable crying, and then the inevitable more crying, and then the fighting. Uh, it's it's and the, then and and then the kids start crying, right? <laughs> exactly. That's the way it goes in our house. It's just it, it's amazing, like how um, you know, like I'll be on a call and I'll hear some banging downstairs. And I get off the call and I hear come downstairs and my wife and my daughter, uh, very, both of them are very strong willed ladies, uh, just at each other's throat because they can't enter text into a text box on whatever assignment my daughter happens to be doing for math. Oh like, my God. Just, like, um, like the, you know, getting all the, all the work done for school is just crazy. And it's only a couple of hours a day. Yeah, I, I've got the same situation. And, and part of the problem is that the school can't decide, the school district can't seem to decide what method they want to use to teach online. So every other day, there's some new app or some new online program or some new website. And then that is connected to something that either the password works or then it works and then it doesn't or something along those lines. 
And then you get in and it's like, you've got to create a text box to be able to enter the thing. I'm like, these kids are nine. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in my forties and I can't figure this out. Like how, how am I supposed to just hand my kid her tablet, which half the time doesn't connect the right way to anything and then go, okay, yeah, now log into a school district website. That's a mess and guide, guide your way to answer, you know, how many sides this triangle has. But through the, through it all, I, I know I've been overwhelmed and with, you know, with work, with, with, um, you know, the homeschooling, with just being with my family this much, like I'm used to a little bit of a break, but, you know, we're trying to take the wins where we can. And, um, you know, we're, we're practicing, you know, family yoga, we're doing, trying to do some meditation, we're trying to do, um, you know, deep breaths whenever we're really upset. And we're trying to use all of those moments of deep, utter frustration with the world to just take a step back and try and figure it out. I mean, at the end of this, I'm I, I'm hopeful that we will come out of it with at least some level of skill to manage overwhelm. I'm I'm glad you guys are having success because I have uh, just yesterday the example of what happens when you don't have success with that. At some point, I uh, my my body says you have not processed what you're going through properly. And it's time to shut down. And it just it does a hard reboot. And yesterday was one of those days where, you know, I had a lot of things I wanted to get done. I wanted to record this episode with you. And uh, it took every ounce of energy I had to go with the family down to the market to get the produce that we need for the week. I came back and I literally could not get out of bed. I think I slept for like two hours and I laid there for another hour, hour and a half mm. trying trying to convince myself, get out of bed you you know this is not how you want to spend a gorgeous sunny sunday afternoon um but it wasn't enough i couldn't i physically couldn't get my legs to move to get out of bed and that's just that is when overwhelm just completely uh takes over and just shuts down because i'm not i'm not handling it properly i'm not getting the exercise i need i'm not eating the way that i should i'm not meditating i'm not taking those moments that, you know, to use all the tools that we've talked about for 30 plus episodes and all the advice that, that we've heard and shared through this show, when I don't implement enough of those tools the right way, I'm just done. I just shut down. Mm -hmm. Having lost that battle yesterday, uh, one of the things I wanted to make sure that I did today was to, um, you know, I've, I've talked on the show how I've been trying to get back into my yoga practice and I have this really weird thing that almost every time, like 98% of the time when I do yoga, it becomes an emotional experience for me and it unlocks some of the grief or the sadness or the fear or whatever it is that I'm carrying. And today was one of those cases where I knew, you know, I've got to move my body. I've got to do something. I've got to use one of these tools to start fighting back and start winning these battles. And so today, one of the first things I did with my kids was after they did a school lesson, we did family yoga. And I did. I Today, I got a little bit of that release. I got some of that out through this practice where, you know, in the middle of my pose, all of a sudden, I'm just like weeping. I'm just crying this this fear out and this sadness out. And uh, and in the end, I felt a lot better. And so it's just, you know, I have these constant reminders of the fact that I have the tools and I have the knowledge and I have the ability to do better and to not get overwhelmed and to not get to that point. I think everybody needs some of that right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, now more than ever, right? It's, 
you know, even even if you are doing all the right things and taking care of yourself and um, in all the right ways, I mean, it it is inevitable if you've got children at home, if you're if you haven't left the left the house in a month, uh, if you're running out of toilet paper and you don't know what you're going to do. I mean, it, it's going to build up and it's built up really fast. I mean, I was in a pretty good spot this morning when I woke up, um, you know, just drinking coffee um everything was good i was on like my second cup of coffee and i hear somebody yell from upstairs and um turns out the dog was throwing up all over my daughter's room well well we're gonna start the day this way um and then they killed a rabbit in the backyard and so i mean just 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 the dogs (laughs) just the dogs was enough and then we had math issues with homework and uh it was it it, it 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 built up very very quickly and i was outside doing some yard work and i ended up just throwing one of the tools because i was upset that there were weeds growing in the yard it which, was which, sorry which, which tool was it oh it, it, it happened to be a wheelbarrow <laughs> yeah I had what, to, I, what kind of distance did you get how far did you throw a wheelbarrow uh it went it went pretty far for a wheelbarrow it was empty of course but um it was just it, it was this perfect moment of like i looked down there were weeds in the yard we hired a service to come and take care of all the weeds so i was upset that they had rescheduled they were supposed to be here on april 1st to do a treatment and they didn't come i was trying to shovel in some old like beauty bark from the flower bed into the wheelbarrow um from the people who had the house before us and just really ugly and i was really upset at the lack of care that they had done to the to the flower garden mm-hmm. and then as i was like picking up the first shovel full and moving it over a strong gust of wind came through and blew it all out of the shovel oh, and God. onto the sidewalk and i just that's all it takes sometimes yeah and i was like just the wheelbarrow went and then i went around the house i took some deep breaths came back out my wife was like you okay now I was like yep we're good let's <laughs> Let's make this place beautiful. <laughs> so what's uh, what's the takeaway there? How, how, what's the the tool that people should use uh, from your experience to to not be in that same situation? Just just don't just embrace the weeds. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's really just, I, when you, for me anyway. When I feel it building, I I have to take a couple of minutes and just take some deep breaths. I mean. We've talked about and, it. And throw times. a wheelbarrow. Well, the wheelbarrow <laughs> was the frustration, right? Because the wheelbarrow hit a rock and like didn't hit anything that could break, right? Because mm-hmm. um, most of the time, whenever I have some kind of uh, um, reaction like that, something gets broken. So anyway, um, nothing got broken and I just had to go take a, a few deep breaths. And it's just amazing like what when you realize you've gotten to that point what a few breaths can do and 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 you know in normal times i can actually recognize when it's building and i can i can put things in place to prevent myself from getting to that point mm-hmm. but because we are where we are in the world right now you know you know a lot of the overwhelm that we're all feeling is you know, for me anyway, it's just, it's just around all the misinformation that's going around. Right? Oh my I God. Mean, yes. What's true. What's not true. I mean, I've, I've seen, um, I've seen a story that, that says, you know, somebody can sneeze and it, it goes six feet or it goes 22 feet. Like what's the truth? Like there's so much misinformation out there 
And that is, you know, definitely causing me to have a, a relatively high level of anxiety to, you know, uh, essentially blow my lid um, without recognizing that I'm getting there. We happen to be joined this week by an expert in uh, all things medicine. Uh, his name is Dr. Paul Offit. He has a new book out. It's called Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far. He also happens to be the co-inventor of a vaccine. So here's a guy who knows a thing or two about vaccines, and that's one of the big uh, misinformation pieces that's going around is how long it's going to take for us to get one to be able to, uh, you know, put out into the world and let us get back to some sort of normal. So uh, our conversation now with Dr. Paul Offit, starting really with sort of what's going on with the world revolving around COVID-19. The good news is um, with studies with human coronavirus, uh, we know that if you're infected with one type of human coronavirus, that you can be protected against that same type probably for years. That's a good sign. Um, there are more than 40 companies that are trying to make this vaccine across the globe, and there's certainly not a, a lack of either money or interest. That's good. Um, but there's so much you don't know. You, you still don't quite know exactly how you would make the vaccine. Um, you know, you, you, the people are just starting to do sort of dose-ranging studies just to get a rough idea of what dose of their possible vaccine it could be. And then, then you have to ultimately build to do a huge efficacy trial to prove that your vaccine is safe most importantly, and to prove that it's effective. And, and how big that trial would be depends on what the um, attack rate is at the time that you're doing the studies, which would be at least, I would imagine, a year or two from now. And then you have to do, you get, make sure you have the right buffering agent, the right stabilizing agent, the right vial, that you do real-time stability studies. Um, you know, you have to uh, make sure you can scale it up so that you can mass produce as many as tens of millions or hundreds of millions of doses. And that that's takes time. I just can't imagine we could have anything done within two years that would meet those criteria. So why are we hearing that messaging from from the White House and others that that we could see something in a year or two? Is is it just wishful thinking? Yes, it's wishful thinking. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. Uh, I, without putting you in a position of, of having to take a political side on this, how how would you grade sort of the, the global and the national response uh, to COVID-19? Well, I think China was not a good player here. I mean, it should have taken a whistleblower to tell us that there was a virus circulating in Wuhan and then outside of Wuhan that was killing people. That was a novel strain of coronavirus. I mean, you know, it, so China wasn't a good player here. The World Health Organization was slow to declare this a pandemic. They, even by early March, they hadn't declared this pandemic when it clearly was. But again, I mean, our country had a clear heads up on this by mid-January. We knew that from intelligence, our intelligence sources, that this was going to be a major pandemic. And there was a lot we didn't do to prepare for this, not the least of which was testing. I mean, South Korea had done 200,000 tests by the time we'd done 500. There's no reason that should have been true. We have the scientific uh, expertise in this country that clearly matches South Korea. So I think we'll look back on this two years from now and, and realize all the things we didn't do right about this that uh, I'm sure cost lives, but um, I guess it's always easy in retrospect to some extent. So uh, speaking of two years from now when we're looking back, what what does society look like in your mind? How do we, how do we come through this? Well, so... Uh, we're learning about this virus. The human coronaviruses, typically a winter spring viruses, they go away in the summer because it's small droplet spread. 
it's more humid, those small droplets, um, well, I'm sorry, much more humid, those small droplets sort of accrete water, acquire water, and then they drop down more quickly. So uh, coronaviruses, which account for, you know, 15 to 20 percent of our hospitalizations in the winter and spring, will pretty much go away in the summer. I don't know whether that's going to happen with this virus. It's, it's a bat coronavirus. It's not a human coronavirus, and it's just made its debut in the human population. We'll see how it acts. So I'm not sure what happens over the next year or two or three. My suspicion is is, is it's not going to be SARS or MERS, which were basically one-year and done viruses, also novel coronaviruses. This will be a more – one is more widespread and also is much more easily transmitted and has much more – asymptomatic and uh, mildly symptomatic infection, which wasn't true for SARS or MERS. So this is a different virus. But um, we'll learn. We'll learn as we go. My prediction is that two or three years from now, this is not nearly what it is now. You talked about learning as we go, and, and I was I was late to the party on this. Um, when it was first spreading and first showing up in Washington State, uh, where I live, um, I kept hearing the symptoms uh, being equated to the flu, and I, I didn't get it. I just, uh, I just thought this is this is too much hype. This is just a bunch of overreaction, which maybe in the end is a good thing because if it does get bad, whatever. But once I heard kind of how um, how viral and and what this thing does to your lungs, that turned the page for me. Can you sort of give us a, a picture of what this virus does to someone who gets it to to help understand why this is so significant? It, it causes pretty severe disease in, 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 obviously, in older people who have other problems like, you know, high blood pressure and, and type 2 diabetes and obesity. That's true. But it also does cause a lot of, you know, young people to be admitted to the hospital and, and, and the intensive care unit. It, it makes you sick. And, and, I mean, flu, certainly flu could account for as many as 65,000 deaths this year and certainly affects uh, younger people in some ways more. But but, uh, I mean, so, for example, 155 children have died from influenza this year in this country. Fewer than five have died from COVID-19. But um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a bad virus. I mean, it certainly makes you sick. Um, it's, it's not flu in the sense that it's flu in the sense that it's a respiratory virus and it's spread primarily by respiratory droplets and fomites, meaning things that you touch. But I think it's actually much more contagious than flu. I, th I think we'll find out. Flu has a so-called reproducibility index of two, meaning you'll infect two people every day, assuming that you live your normal day and assuming that they've never been infected before. I think this virus is going to be at least twice that, maybe more. We'll, we'll see over time. Why why don't we take the flu more seriously? I, even I, I, you know, it's just one of those things that my whole life is just, it's something that you get once in a while and, and you're fine, but it is incredibly deadly. Why does it take this disease to put that on the map and make us think, you know, maybe maybe we should be taking more precautions, even with just the standard flu? Good question. Don't know. I mean, the CDC estimates 700,000 people, as many as 700,000 people have been hospitalized with flu this year, 65,000 have died. I mean, as compared to roughly 30,000 have died, at least as of this morning, from COVID-19. So I don't know. I mean, you see sort of flags flying at half mass where I am now and, and uh we could arguably do that every winter for flu. I think flu, the, the problem with flu is that, that while there's a vaccine, it's a vaccine you have to take every year. And, and that, I think, is burdensome for people. And it's a vaccine that's about 50 to 60 percent effective, which is what makes it one of the lesser effective vaccines that we have. And um, I don't know. It just seems like I think, I think flu also gets confused with a lot of other sort of respiratory illnesses that are not nearly as serious. But when you have that was old, the old line in medical school. If a medical student wants to know what it's really like to be sick, get flu, because that really knocks you on your butt. 
flu. I mean, shaking chills, you know, high fever, uh, headaches, progressing to respiratory symptoms. It's a much more serious illness than just typical respiratory viruses. I don't know why we don't take it as seriously. We should. It's a killer. Yeah. Uh, back to the vaccine thing quickly. One of my concerns uh, as we get through this and once we get to that magic vaccine that hopefully wipes this thing out is there is still a community of anti-vaxxers out there that no matter what you tell them about how the thing in the needle is only going to protect your life, they refuse to do it. How do you get them on board with something like this? Because if, if everybody doesn't, doesn't get on board, this thing doesn't go away. I, I think when there was an outbreak in Southern California and there was then it sort of centered in the Disneyland area and it was a group of sort of generally upper middle class, um, suburban, um, well-educated people who had a critical number had chosen not to vaccinate their kids. When that outbreak hit and spread, you know, from Southern California to about 25 states, affected 190 people, a lot of those people got their kids vaccinated. I think fear generally sells. I mean, we're, we're asking people to get a vaccine um, against diseases most people don't see, you know, polio, diphtheria, tetanus. I mean, you can sort of see, see how easy it is to set those aside. I, I think that, that were there to be an effective vaccine, I think anti-vaccine activists would still embrace this vaccine. Usually where anti-vaccine activists, who are generally conspiracy theorists, come from is that they don't want to have vaccines mandated. They, they don't want to be told they have to get a vaccine um, because they feel that they're, they're, that's sort of against their right. They feel it's their inalienable right to catch and transmit potentially fatal infections, which I disagree with, but um, that's sort of where they come from. I, I think that if this virus continues to rage the way it is, and there was a clear vaccine to protect it, I, I would imagine even they would get this vaccine. So you mentioned earlier the droplets that, that people are spreading through the air. I've, I've seen a bunch of stories, whether they're, they're fact or fiction, that you know six feet away from another person is not enough. Um, so what, what is the right amount of distance that we should be staying away from people, and how far are these droplets spreading? And um, you know, what is, you know, can we never stand next to somebody ever again? What's, what is that all about? No, I, I think six feet's enough. I, the CDC has come down on six feet. So small droplet spread is roughly six feet. I, I, I think this is measles. I mean, measles is an airspace disease. You just, you don't even have to be next to me. You just have to be in the same airspace where I was within two hours of my being there. Their droplets are much smaller and sort of hang in the air like a ghost. I think six feet generally is enough, but is this going to affect the way that we, treat other people? Yes. I, I mean, you watch what's going on now where people, you know, individuals are walking down the street with masks on, trying to stay away from everybody else. I think we're going to be shaking hands less. I think we're going to see everybody else as a threat for a while till we calm down. This has been scarring, much as 9-11 was scarring. I think this has really affected our psyche. There's been nothing like it, not in my lifetime. That's so, it's so interesting for me. There's, there's just so many echoes of 9-11, just the same fear and uncertainty and all that. It's, I, it's interesting how I, how I keep hearing that. Um, so, so from all the you know, miracles that medicine can do to, to get us through this and, and several other things, your book sort of goes in another direction, uh, overkill when modern medicine goes too far. So many things are brought up in this book that I, that I wrestle with constantly, the, the sunscreen, the ibuprofen, all the things that, that are just sort of built in automatic things that you argue maybe we don't need as much of or any of to varying degrees. So on the topic of, of medication, antibiotics, we're, we're using way too many of them. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your concerns in that area? Yeah, that's 
that's sort of what got me into this. I mean, certainly we use antibiotics injudiciously, which is to say we give them for people that have viral infections and, and antibiotics don't treat viruses. So that's certainly true. What got me into this book actually was an article that was in uh, a medical journal called The Lancet by a, a well-known infectious disease expert in, in England. And the title of the article was, Is This the End of the Antibiotic Course? And his, his, it was based on a, a study that had been done in the, the Lancet at the time. But his argument was, why do we set a defined length of time at the beginning of, the, of an illness for how long you should treat it? I mean, we don't do that for other things. If you have asthma, you, you, you treat till the wheezing is gone. If you have pain, you treat till the pain is gone. Why, for example, if you have an ear infection, if a child has an ear infection, is over two years of age, and, and after two or three days of antibiotic, why do we treat for another seven days? And, and what, what, what that sort of set in motion was a look at all the studies that have been done looking at now how you can treat for much shorter periods of time. I mean, for example, um, people who have kidney infections, we would treat for 10 or 14 days with antibiotics, whereas now it's clear that you can treat for as little as five days, assuming that you have sort of two days of not having fever and you just feel better. Same thing for bladder infections, which we used to treat for seven or 10 days, can be treated for three days. And this is just one of the many examples where pneumonia would be treated for 10 or 14 days, can be treated for five days. And those are just the beginnings of the study showing we can start walking back on this, that you can treat the patient. When they start to feel better and their fevers come down, you can, if, the, if the immune system is saying, I don't need to, to respond anymore because all the symptoms that you have are based on your immune response, then why don't you just stop giving the antibiotics? And, and now we know that you can. So I, I feel, you know, that was the most shocking thing. Basically, you know, that you don't need to finish your antibiotic course. This seems thing, thing that seems to be ingrained in us, but there's abundant evidence for it. And many advisory groups now do recommend much, much shorter periods of, of time for treating with antibiotics. That's really good news because I'm I'm a bad patient when it comes to antibiotics. I take them, you know, for the first couple of days and then I feel great. And so I take it maybe one or two more days. And after that, I, you know, I've forgotten about it because I feel better. And so it, it's reassuring to know that I'm not right. completely hosing myself. You were right. As it turns out, you were ahead of the pack. <laughs> uh, okay. So sort of along the same lines of letting the body heal itself, uh, using uh, medication to bring down a fever, uh, using ice on things like sprains. These uh, are maybe not the best approach when trying to recover from uh, injuries and, and, and high fever illnesses. Yeah, I mean, so, so why do we all make fever? I mean, every, every mammal or every animal that, that walks, crawls, swims, or flies on the face of this earth can make fever. We all do it. We pay a metabolic cost for it, meaning we expend energy for it. We all make fever. Why? And the reason is simple, because your immune system works better at a higher temperature. White blood cells kill bacteria better at a higher temperature. Um, B cells, which make antibodies, make antibodies more efficiently and better at a higher temperature. And so, therefore, when you choose to treat fever, although you feel better because now you don't have the chills or you don't have the sort of muscle aches, the fact of the matter is you shed virus for longer, you shed bacteria for longer, you know, the pathogenic bacteria, and, it, and you can prolong and worsen illness by treating fever. Study after study has shown this. I don't know why we continue to do this. And the worst place that we do it is in, in vaccines. I mean, when you give, you know, anti-fever medicines around the time of vaccines because you don't want the child to have fever, you actually have a lower immune response to the vaccine. This has been shown again and again. It's just, I just feel like it's sort of marketing beats data, you know, that certainly the, the pharmaceutical companies who make antipyretics are constantly tell you how, how important it is to get the fever down. And I think we as physicians or clinicians, um, you know, just see this as, as our role to make sure we get that fever down. But 
When we do that, we pay a price. Uh, the, the one example I use, and, and I talk in the book uh, about this to some extent, there was a, a, a child who came into our house, a 15-year-old boy who was a soccer player. The, the, and he got hit by a soccer ball, which caused him to have in his hip something called a septic thrombophlebitis, which is a thrombus or clot in a vein that was associated with MRSA, the bacteria of MRSA, which is hard to treat. That bacteria then was in his bloodstream, so it went to his lungs and caused abscesses, meaning collections of pus. It went to his brain and caused brain abscesses. It went to his bones and joints and caused abscesses. He was sick, and every two hours he was getting ibuprofen or Tylenol, every two hours to keep his high spiking fevers down. And every day for a week and a half, he had bacteria in his bloodstream. Until finally we sat down, we, the infectious disease team, sat down with his parents, sat down with him, sat down with nurses, and said, stop treating his fever. And with that, within a day or so, the bacteria cleared from his bloodstream because we were crippling part of his immune system. Let his immune system work for him. The parents were great about it. Now, it may have been, that may have happened anyway. It may have just been coincidence. But Parents certainly didn't believe that, nor the child, nor the nurses. Everybody was pretty amazed at that outcome. A quick follow-up on that. I've, I have heard, uh, and typically my practice when I do get sick, is to feel the sickness during the day. Just don't, you know, don't take ibuprofen. Like, don't do anything to fight the fever. Just experience it so that your body, you know, reacts the way that it wants to, and it puts you in bed, and, and you're done. But then to treat it at night so that you can sleep uh, and your body can sort of fight it uh, better from a better night's sleep. Is that would you advise that, or is that a mistake? Well, certainly sleep is restorative. That's for sure. I mean, then actually, animal model studies showing that the degree to which you don't let animals who are infected have sleep is the degree to which they have trouble. So it's it's a, it's a it's a reasonable point. I, I think fever is generally always good for you, and usually it breaks. I mean, you sweat as your your fever comes. I mean, your body your your body wants you to be warm. I mean the the way fever works is your hypothalamus, which is sort of in the center of your brain, gets reset to a higher temperature. It wants you to be warmer. So I say, you know, if you can, go with it, because you, you know that when your body is warmer, that the immune system is working better at the higher temperature, as has been shown in study after study. It's, it's just, but, but, you know, this, this book is trying to break something that is so central to our culture that it's uh, hard to imagine that, that this book will change the way we think about fever. But, you know, it's certainly change the people that have read it, like the editors and public, uh, public relations people at, at HarperCollins, they all now don't treat fever. So at least in, in the people that have read it, that, that's work. But I yeah. think not everybody in the country is going to read this book, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, we're doing our part. We're doing our best. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in talking about the immune system, I, mean, I, I, I will freely admit I'm a bit of a, uh, a supplement junkie myself. I like to um, experiment and take a lot of supplements. But really, um, am I am I doing any good for my body? Are, are supplements really just a marketing uh, marketing thing out there, or are are certain supplements better than others, um, or should should we not even be taking supplements? I think for the most part, we shouldn't be taking supplements. I mean, you should be careful of the fact that it's not a regulated industry. Um, you know that that pretty much. On a weekly basis, one of these supplements are being pulled off the shelf because they're found to cause harm. And remember, when I say it's not a regulated industry, that means that you aren't guaranteed that what's on the label is what's in the bottle. And that, that, that happens again and again. Secondly, I mean, most people, probably the most common and the one I talk about in this book is vitamin C to prevent or treat colds. There are 50 studies, 50 studies, prospective controlled studies where they give people vitamin C or don't give them vitamin C and then monitor their symptoms and study after study after study shows that it doesn't work. 
Um, it would be nice if you had something that made the cold go away quicker, but I think William Osler, who's sort of like a, one of those grand physicians from the past, probably said it best, that the best way to treat a cold is with disdain. I think that's pretty much makes the most sense. I mean, you can treat it symptomatically, but but the, the vitamin C, if you take 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C, take, take, say, say you take uh, emergency, you know, 1,000 milligrams, you know, you would have to eat um, eight cantaloupes or 14 oranges to get that much vitamin C. You would never normally get that much vitamin C. And when you take vitamin C, typically in, you know, in fruits and vegetables or whatever, you're taking it when it's surrounded by other so-called phytochemicals, I mean, vitamin C, like everything else, the chemical. And, and that's the way you're supposed to get it. So, so do that. Drink orange juice. But don't, don't take these compressed tablets. I, I give credit to an industry that continues to be able to market itself as natural when what they're asking you to do is anything but natural. So I have so some, uh, sorry, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Zach. So some supplements, I mean, I know are just, your body can only absorb a certain amount of it and then the rest is just wasted. Is vitamin C one of those? Yes. I think, I think when you take a multivitamin, it's probably not going to hurt you. It just makes for a lot of expensive urine. <laughs> <laughs> That's what yeah. I keep hearing. That's fantastic. Uh, so, so on that subject and, and then uh, segueing into the sun, uh, here in Seattle, we don't get a lot of sun. And so my doctor tells me every year, take more vitamin D, take more vitamin D, take more vitamin D. Uh, is, is that also a mistake or should I just be looking for it in, uh, in food sources like you suggest? This was a surprise to me, actually, because I, I, if you if you if you get a vitamin D level, for example, and it's between 20 and 30 sort of micrograms, that's often listed as insufficient. And, and when you look closer, anything over 20 is perfectly sufficient. So suddenly 60 percent of the population has become vitamin D deficient. And it's, you know, the, probably the most it is the most popular, I think, of the dietary supplements. So, so looking closely at this. Um, First of all, remember, vitamin D, even if you're just outside for, sort of for 15 minutes a day, twice a week in, in the sun, you're, you're getting vitamin D there. But you're also getting a lot of vitamin D in, in supplemented foods. It's really hard to be vitamin D, D deficient in this country. Um, I mean, how many people with rickets do you know? It, you know, it's just, it's, 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 it's hard to be vitamin D. See, I think where the industry is able to cash in is they, they say, you know, is, are you really getting what you need in your diet? Because they know all of us sort of don't eat the way we should, and we sort of, you know, um, a lot of fast foods and stuff. And so it's easy to say, okay, I'm going to just ensure I get what I need by just taking this supplement. But you really get more in your food than, than you think. You probably don't know many people with scurvy or rickets because um, it's hard to be vitamin deficient in this country because so much, so many foods are supplement. Even folic acid now is sort of in rice, and cereals, and grains. So all those midline deficiencies that, that were associated with women who didn't, who during while pregnant weren't getting enough folic acid, even that's gone away. So we're doing much better. It's fascinating. I have uh, one last question. I know you've got another interview to get to, and it's about sunscreen. You mentioned getting out in the sun 15 minutes, a couple times a week. I, I wrestle with this with my for myself, for my kids all the time. I I hate putting it on. I don't I don't trust what's in it. I don't like it, but I'm told that the sun is going to give me cancer if I don't wear it. So how how do I walk the line? How do I not get cancer while not putting toxic chemicals all over my body to prevent getting a different kind of cancer? Yeah, so, so it's ultraviolet B radiation that is, is probably the worst. That's at its peak between 10 in the morning and 4 in the afternoon. Um, I think what happens is where sunscreen can be a problem is the term sunblock, which is not a correct term. If you want to be blocked from the sun, stay inside or wear productive, protective clothing. I mean, the, the best term is sunscreen. So you're lessening the amount of UV radiation. I think what happens, is the, the downside of this is that is people who, wear, who use sunscreen or sun 
what is called sunblock, um, often think they're protected and they're good, so they can stay out for longer periods of time. So there's a number of studies showing that, that you know, although it decreases, obviously, the amount of UVB radiation you, you get, because you think you're protected, you stay on the sun much longer and therefore have an increased risk of, of, uh, of cancer, of uh, skin cancer. So there's sort of a false security associated with this that I think uh, people don't realize. So, so get out early, get out late, and if you go out in the middle of the day, just cover up with actual clothes and hats and things. Right. All right. That's pretty simple. Fascinated by the book, fascinated by the conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, it's, a, it's a privilege to get to speak with you. Well, thank you. The privilege was mine. Thank you. All right. Our thanks to Dr. Paul Offit. The book, again, is Overkill When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far. I love that uh, that he just took a big dump all over all those supplements that you take. He did. Because you, ta- you take them by the fistful. There was there was one day that um, I had to break it up into th- and I can I can generally swallow. Uh, I can probably swallow like 12 pills at a time, like the big ones. Mm-hmm. And at one point in time, I had to break it up into three chunks because I was taking that many. <laughs> Are you still even after our conversation with the, the doctor who knows a thing or two? No, I actually weeded them out um, over time and like took one out at a time and was and paid attention to what difference it made. And I've I've got it down to like I take a multivitamin and I take a turmeric supplement and I take krill oil and I take a, a daily Prilosec. <laughs> so it's still pretty big, but it's it's yeah. nowhere near where, where it was. I The turmeric, though, like I know um, most supplements based on what he said, you know, it's just buying you expensive pee mm-hmm. but um the turmeric i actually can tell a a very big difference in my body so you know i think i will accept his explanation that you know a lot of a lot of supplements are garbage but you know i some of them i think do help certain people and turmeric is one that definitely helps me um, well, the rest of them the rest of them are they're questionable a lot of that too i mean the supplements and, and all this stuff i don't know a lot of this goes back to the idea of mindset. And if you're doing something that makes you feel good about doing it, it's probably worth doing. You know what yeah. I mean? Like if taking a fistful of supplements, if the worst case scenario is you're buying expensive pee, but it makes you feel like you're doing something good for your body and it, and you believe in that, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to stand here and tell you not to do it. It's just, you're throwing a lot of money away, but, but if it feels good, I think it's, you know, there's, there's no harm in giving it a try. Well, it was the money part that actually was the uh, where I had to dial it back. I was um, I added it up one day and I don't remember the exact number, but I mean, it was like my daily supplement intake was like just just the number of pills that I was taking was like fourteen dollars worth of pills a day, a day, a day. It was. Oh, my God. And I didn't even realize it. Like I had all of them on auto subscribe. They were being bought at different times. And sure, um, it was. Yeah. That, oh that was, my goodness. Was a, that was a, that was a, uh, I had a plan in action and already executing how I was going to decrease the amount of supplements I was going to, I was taking before I told my wife how much I was spending on supplements. <laughs> uh, well, if you need some help, uh, making some better decisions about how to let your body fight things off naturally and not necessarily leaning on 
the pharmaceutical industry or the supplement industry or whatever it is. Uh, again, the book is Overkill. The uh, author is uh, Dr. Paul Offit. Uh, fascinating conversation. Uh, lots of really, really great information in the book and lots of science in the book that's very approachable uh, to back up a lot of his claims. So I, I can't recommend it enough. It's it's a great read. Yeah, and it's and it, it really is such a good book. I mean, that mindset of questioning, you know, these beliefs that have been handed down for, you know, generations and questioning them and actually finding out that they're false and being open to that fact. I mean, I've met so many people that hold their beliefs so tightly that you could, you could put data, you could put evidence in front of them that it's not true and, and they don't believe you. Um, so just having that open mindset to say, what if what I think is true is not true? It's one of the best books uh, that I think that that we have talked about on the show. So I'm just uh, I'm very excited to get to share uh, that conversation and, and uh, that information with you. Um, so, but before we go, I want to I want to take just a couple of minutes to you know reach out to our audience here. Uh, you know, Jeremy and I really enjoy doing this podcast, and you know, it really it keeps us accountable for you know keeping keeping our heads right, and and we just love helping people. Um, so, but we, we would like to ask everyone to help us back. Um, we would like to grow the show to a, a larger audience. So we'd like to ask everyone who listened to this point, first off, thank you so very much for listening this far. Second, can you just share the show with one person? That's all we're asking Just share it with one person. If we can do that, we can double our audience and we can help more people. And that ultimately is what we're trying to do here. I, you know, I love, I know a lot of times, um, you know, we're, we're just kind of openly sharing our struggles, openly sharing, you know, some of the hard times that we're going through. And, you know, we've said over and over again that uh, in a lot of ways we're here to just sort of help people feel less alone. But, you know, if we can also find some tools to help through those hard times and help find ways to overcome those problems, then it's an even bigger win for us. And it's a bigger win for everyone involved um, because you know, we're, we're all in this together. So, uh, so like Zach said, if you can share on social media or tell somebody about it, but just share with one person that you think would be interested, it can go a long way to really helping grow the show and, and helping grow, uh, the, the mission that we're, that we're trying to accomplish here. And with that, I hear children in the background. So yes. you must be getting close to dinner time. It's dinner time. Yes. So I need to go. I'm sure you need to go. It's very late on the East coast for you. Uh, you listener, thanks so much for being there. And uh, again, for sharing the show and, and participating uh, in whatever way you can. We will be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode. You can subscribe and find all the information you need for us at thefitmess.com. We'll see you there in a couple of weeks. Thanks. See you, everyone. We know this podcast is amazing and does not seem to lack anything, but we do need a legal disclaimer. Jeremy and Zach are not doctors. They do not play them on the Internet, and even if they did play them on the Internet, they would be really bad at it. Please consult your physician prior to implementing any changes that you heard on this podcast. The listener assumes that Jeremy and Zach do not know what they are talking about and that you will do your own research on the topics talked about on this podcast.